in my own identity, I'm a seventh generation Jonesport Beals Islander, which I only found out a couple of months ago, um, on both sides of my family. My grandfather was, was born on an island in the middle of Musebeck Reach, French House Island, in 1897. My grandmother uh, and her family uh, came from a long line of, of uh, ship captains. And I go past the house that my father and my grandmother were born in every day when I go to DEI. And when I go across the Beals Island Bridge, I can see French House Island. And there's, you know, it's just a bunch of trees now, but there's some old you know, cellars and things like that. There used to be a, a, a whole community out there. And if my memory serves me, the house that my grandfather was born in was transported from French House Island to Beals Island. And I can see that house every day when I go past it on my way to DEI. So, you know, that that's the sense of place and the sense of self. And that is, is that this is, this is, I guess, you know, my fate. This is where I, I belong. And that's how I feel. From the northern and easternmost coast in the United States, you're listening to Down East Viewpoints, a sense of place, a sense of self. Thanks for joining me, Claire Deal, Virginia College professor and summertime Down East resident, as I interview local people who are passionate about preserving and protecting the Gulf of Maine's bays, islands, and marine life. My guest today is Dr. Brian Beal, a native of Jonesport, Maine, and a 1979 graduate of the University of Maine at Machias. Dr. Beal earned his master's degree in marine sciences from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Go Tar Heels, and has a PhD in marine bioresources from the University of Maine at Orono. He's now a professor of marine ecology at UMM, where his position is divided equally between teaching and research. Dr. Beal wears many hats, and most of the time, various sorts of boots for tromping about in the mudflats. In addition to teaching and conducting his own research with shellfish of all sorts, he directs UMM's Marine Field Station at Black Duck Cove. Way back in 1986, Dr. Beal was instrumental in establishing Maine's first lobster hatchery in Cutler, Maine. And then in 1987, working with clamors and shellfish committees across Washington County, he was instrumental in creating Maine's first public clam hatchery. Dr. Beale is also the research director for the renowned Downies Institute on Great Wasp Island. And in our interview, we'll get the skinny on how the Downies Institute came to be. So let's get started. You've come full circle with your childhood stomping grounds in Jonesport and just across Musebeck Reach on Beale's Island. Such a beautiful and bustling part of Downeast with thriving working waterfront. Coast Guard Station, the famed lobster boat races, wild blueberries, and just a little bit of fog. Can you tell me about your journey from UMM college student to UMM college professor? So how did I find the place? I found the place because my dad graduated from the, let's see, Washington State Teachers College in around 1955. Mm -hmm. And quote, the teachers college was good enough for me and it will be good enough for you. I really wanted to go to to UMaine. Mm. I didn't really want to live in Jonesport and come to UMM, but I did. I ended up doing that, partly because my dad wouldn't fill out the tax forms that were requested by the University of Maine. So I was a student for four years at UMM, and I commuted back and forth between my folks' house in Jonesport and 
and UMM every day. Mm. Um, it's also where I met my wife, which was which was great. Oh. So fate was sealed, and my dad said it was good enough for me. So, um, so I graduated from UMM, and uh, that was 1979, and I had just a, a wonderful experience here as an undergrad. Uh, the teachers were just super, and one of them in particular became my my mentor. And we all have mentors, you know, whether or not they were our fifth grade teachers or whether they were, you know, our uh, high school or, or college teachers. And this was a guy named John Camito, who I still am in touch with, and he has a, a summer camp in Harrington. Mm -hmm. um, he was a, a recent grad of Duke University back in 1977, and he came here for three years. And I took marine ecology and invertebrate zoology and population and community ecology from him. And it was like opening a door. And all the things that I had experienced growing up as a kid, going out lobster fishing with my grandfather and clamming with him and just, you know, periwinkling, you name it. Um, it, just, it, it. It just became an explosion of tastes and opportunities and visions and I thought oh my god this is really this is cool stuff I would get the old wives tale from my grandfather and then I'd read about the life history of a periwinkle or a lobster in the invertebrate zoology book or have that experience in the classroom and it was like oh god it doesn't work like my grandfather said but his observations are absolutely perfect I mean he saw what he saw it's just you know his mechanisms or his answers for how things get to be there and the real mechanisms you know they're they're sometimes uh, you know pulls apart mm -hmm. and what was really cool for me was learning about that stuff and then my grandfather I had him until I was in my 40s so I could you know tell him what I learned and and relate all that stuff and it was like really you know that it works that way and I said well that's what it says here and, and then I got a chance to do some some research on my own as an undergrad and that was the thing that just excited the bejesus out of me and so I got accepted to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and I got a chance to work with probably the most prominent preeminent benthic ecologist marine benthic ecologist in the world at the time a fellow named uh, Pete Peterson and that was just a whole new educational experience ratcheted up about five times mm -hmm. from what I had here at UMM. I took classes at uh, Chapel Hill for a year and then I moved with my wife to the coast and we lived in Beaufort and our um, Institute for Marine Sciences was in Moorhead City, just yes. the, the town next door. Um, and that was, a, that was a wonderful two and a half year experience of being a graduate student um, having the scope and the time to, to learn more about statistics and experimental design, uh, being able to transfer that information to, to actually field trials where you ask questions about nature and you find some answers. And oftentimes you find another door to another question and you try to poke your head through there and take a look around. Uh, it was fantastic. But after two and a half years of living in North Carolina, my wife and I said, it's too damn hot here. We can't take it anymore. Let's move home. And so we did. And I've, I immediately thought, well, of course, someone with a master's degree in marine science ought to be able to get a job with the Department of Marine Resources. Yeah. Well, that didn't work out. 
and so I went lobster fishing and uh, stern manning for a, a friend of my father's. And uh, eventually, in 1984, um, got a job that was, it, it turned out, actually created for me by the Cooperative Extension mm. in New Maine, but working in the Machias office with 4-H kids that were associated with a clam project. And that was the... That was it. That was the door that I went through, and that has, you know, not, it didn't change, well, it changed my life, and, and it was the path that, uh, you know, I'm still walking down. The way mm -hmm. you, you speak about your story, mm -hmm. it, it really speaks to me, and I see that passion that I've seen as I've looked into your work of the dual teaching while doing research and working with students and young people. Mm -hmm. It kind of seems to me all of those things... I have have come together for you in they, an amazing way. Well, I have the best job because what I didn't know anything about teaching. I didn't teach in grad school. I had mm -hmm. a research grad uh, appointment, so I never was in the classroom. Um, the first time I had a chance to teach was in 1985 when I took a job here at UMM. It wasn't a faculty position. It was a staff position. Um, and interestingly enough, the position had been created by then President Fred Reynolds, who had looked at my work through newspaper mm. articles about my work with Cooperative Extension. He said, we'd like to do that at UMM. So we created this really crazy position called Environmental Resources Coordinator, and it reported directly to the president. Wow. So I'm sitting there in my office, and the VPAA comes in one day and says, do you know how to teach algebra, Brian? And I said, algebra? I, I guess. Uh, I'll give it a shot. So I found myself in the classroom teaching algebra. And then that led to a faculty member here in this division of sciences and math went on sabbatical, and she had been teaching Gail Krauss. She'd yeah. been teaching marine ecology for, that was 88. That was the first time that I'd gotten a chance to teach marine eco. So she'd been teaching it for about seven, excuse me, seven years. Mm -hmm. And she went on sabbatical, and that was my class. And I loved it. I had three students that first year, and it it was just glorious. Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. Just it, I was able to go out on labs with students. I could invent anything, do analyses with the students. It was it was just fantastic. Reading the scientific literature, and uh, when Gail came back from sabbatical, she said, "I've got so many other things to do. If you want marine ecology, you can have it." And I've taught marine ecology every year since 1988, except for 2014 when I got a chance to go on sabbatical leave. So let me just back up a little bit and give sure. you just a little history of that. So I was able to write a grant in 86 to a national organization called the National Coastal Resource Research Institute in Newport, Oregon. And they provided funding for a couple of years from 87 through 88 to establish and create this Beals Island Regional Shellfish Hatchery, that the goal of which was to produce soft-shell clam seed to plant in six communities in the Beals Island area, from Rokes Bluff all the way to Addison, mm -hmm. every town in between. And that program lasted, if you will, from 1987 until 1995, when the president, who was the second, pre the, the one past uh, Fred Reynolds, the, the one that took Fred Reynolds' place, came into my office one day and said, we're done with the hatchery business. Oh. So um, I said, okay, all right. He said, I'll give you a year to figure out what to do. And in a year's time, 
I'd been able to put together a, a group of local people that became a board of directors, and they took over the administrative uh, end of the Beals Island Regional Shellfish Hatchery. And that board, uh, in, in 1999, decided to think about a larger facility. This was this Beals Island Regional Shellfish Hatchery sat on a 100-foot pier. It was a 22 by 42-foot building, and we raised clams in it. And in 88, we had um, enough funding to, to build a, an adjacent greenhouse where we raised algae and a few more clams. So from 1988 through 2003, we were at this place on Beals Island called Perio Point with this very run-down two-story building and this greenhouse, and that was the Beals Island Regional Shellfish Hatchery. The only thing that we did there was to raise soft-shell clams. So the board had a, a retreat in 1999, and we all put our thinking caps on and said, is it possible to do more than what we're doing? And is it possible to... Uh, well, let's, let's find out, first of all, what's needed in the area. And what I did was I reached out to my scientific colleagues, and, and they said, you know, Brian, the reason why there's not a lot of work that gets done scientifically in the marine environment down your way is that nobody has a place to hang their hat and bring their students. So that's, that became the vision, which was to try to create something that we could continue raising soft shell clams because that, was, that has been a, a successful go. And, and the research that came out of that and is still coming out of that today is, has been very rich. Um, but the idea was to, to, to create the infrastructure that would allow people to come and to use the facilities independent of you know, the kind of work that, that we were doing there. So if somebody wanted to come and study tunicates or marine worms or sea urchins or sea slugs or barnacles, it would be a, a place to do that. So that's what we decided in 1999 and 2000, and it took us 17 years oh. to, to come up with the funding to produce what you see now at the Down East Institute. So in 1999, the board said, we're not gonna be Birch anymore, let's be the Down East Institute. And we changed the mission to more broadly, you know, achieve what, what the board wanted. Um, and, you know, it, it was, I think the, the mission is to improve the quality of life of the people of Down East and Coastal Maine through marine research, mm -hmm. through marine science education, and, and the uh, innovation in wild and cultured fisheries. So um, we have been doing things at DEI that have, if you went back to 1987, you'd say, oh, this is very familiar. We're raising soft-shell clams. But in addition to that, we've branched out, and now we're doing projects with blue mussels, mm -hmm. oysters, lobsters, razor clams, Arctic surf clams, Atlantic surf clams, northern quahogs. It's just opened up a whole, whole, whole lot of doors. And for the first time ever, we now have a postdoc who is working on ocean acidification uh, sorts of things. And so it's, it's just it's very exciting. And I just look at it as, as something that will just continue to grow, not on its own, but with, with help by the board and, and, and with me. But at some point in time, you know, I'm going to be retired. And DEI is going to continue to, to, to move ahead. And that's so exciting for me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, that, it's that snowball that, that gets pushed down downhill. And you start it, and 
how big it gets is dependent upon whatever. So lobster fishermen um, and other fisheries in Maine are facing a lot of challenges. And so it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in addition to um, economic challenges with tariffs, with restrictions on lines for lobster traps, the vertical lines, protect the whales, um, COVID impacting restaurants and buyers and global warming and all of these things, it just seems like a lot for our, our people who are making their living from the fisheries to deal with. So my question for you, Dr. Beal, is what do you see in your community partners, how they're doing, how they're feeling, their outlook for you know, what's next? Mm -hmm. Given the science mm -hmm. that you and your students mm -hmm. understand and know, what, what does that do to inform local community members who rely on the fisheries mm -hmm. for their families? Well, you know, the, the picture that you just painted, the, I mean, the first thing that comes into my mind, and, and I never mince words, is this is a hell of a time. Yeah. It, it really is. And it is, you know, at least 100, year, 100 years unique, you know, uniqueness. I mean, we haven't had a pandemic in 100 years or so. And this pandemic is, you know, uh, really affecting almost every aspect of life, you know, in, in Down East Maine. And, and what you said about tariffs and re restaurants and things like that, that has a huge, plays a huge role. So, you know, for the consumer, like you and me, if we want to go out and get a lobster, my God, you know, it's, it's not very expensive and, and you know, it's, it's great for us. But on the other end, you know, think about last year at this time and now, I mean, it's two different worlds. Mm -hmm. So what we have found is that, um, some of some of the, the the locals, in fact, more of them now than than before, are coming to us and saying, "How, how is there anything that you can do to help us?" Mm. And they weren't there last year because everything was fine. Yeah. Now things have changed, and what what I like about that is is that they've they've known about us, and you know they have interacted with us. But now at a time when there's a serious economic challenge, they're coming to us and saying, oh, we recognize what you've done and are doing. And is there anything that we can benefit by from that? And so the answer is, well, yes, you, you can. Um, we're not ever going to say if you do X, then you're going to make Y, okay? Because that's just crazy. Um, what we can do is to talk about what we've done and how we can work with you to see if a change, a positive change, can occur. This has happened with a lot of, with, with several uh, folks that own lobster impoundments mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they're just, they, they, they can't make the lobster pounds function economically for them by filling them with lobsters and waiting and, you know, getting a good price in February and March. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. And one, one is certainly the price of lobsters, but also um, the increased water temperatures that have resulted in, quite frankly, more lobsters on the main coast than probably we've seen in you know over 300 years, um, has, has created a sense of there's so many lobsters and each lobster isn't really being handled with the same respect 
that the lobsters used to be handled by when there were only, you know, an average of less than one lobster per trap. Now we're getting sometimes three, four, seven, twelve, twenty lobsters in a trap. And when you stick your hand down in the trap and get these lobsters out, you know, and you got to get to the next trap, you're spending just a very short time throwing these lobsters at the door. And what's happened is, is that the handling has affected their long-term uh, uh, ability to, sur to survive in a pound. So when you put up, when you put a hundred thousand pounds of lobsters in a pound over the um, over the winter, and it's 1975 you can expect to, to sell between 95,000 to 97,000 pounds of lobsters. They call that shrinkage. So it's a five to two and a half percent, five percent to two and a half percent shrinkage. But today the shrinkage is about 40 percent. And you can't make any money off of that. So they're coming to us and they're saying, is there anything that you um, produce at DEI that we could put in our pounds to, to sell and, and grow? And so we're, we're going through that right now. And, and in some instances, it's soft shell clams. In some instances, it's oysters. In some instances, it's blue mussels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's kind of like we've been doing this work for, you know, mm -hmm. decades. And, uh, and it has had practical, um, you know, uh, people not only down east but along the coast have been using, you know, the information. Um, but it's just been interesting. We're getting a lot more calls and and people coming in and talking over the phone with us about you what, know, to do. what to do what yeah. to do very last question surely thank you for dr brian beale what is it in your own identity that is related to place so in my own identity i'm a seventh generation jonesport beals islander which i only found out a couple of months ago um, on both sides of my family. My, fa my grandfather was, was born on an island in the middle of Musebeck Reach, French House Island, in 1897. My, gr my grandmother uh, and her family uh, came from a long line of, of uh, ship captains. And I go past the house that my father and my grandmother were born in every day when I go to DEI. And when I go across the Beals Island Bridge, I can see French House Island. And there's, you know, it's just a bunch of trees now, but there's some old, um, uh, you know, cellars and things like that. There used to be a, a, a whole community out there. And if my memory serves me, the house that my grandfather was born in was transported from French House Island to Beals Island. And I can see that house every day when I go past it on my way to DEI. So... You know that that's the sense of place and the sense of self, and that is is that this is this is I guess you know my fate. This is where I I belong, and that's how I feel. Um, and and I feel connected, both historically. I feel connected commercially. I feel connected, you know, economically, and certainly educationally, to you know this this place. Um, having gone to undergrad school here at UMM, um, that just kind of put more of a thumbnail, thumb, you know, on top of who I am and, and, and what I do. And um, so I don't know, I, I'm not sure that I answered the question, but I, I like to tell people that, you know, if my, when I grew up, my, my goal in life was to be the catcher for the Boston Red Sox. I love baseball. And I can throw I can throw probably a 70 mile an hour 
you know, ball, and I'm 63 years old. So I love baseball, and I tell people that if I my arm were just a little bit better from my office, I could throw a baseball to where I was born here in Machias in 1957. So that's that's the way I look at at, at things. Thank you, Dr. Brian Beal, for your eloquence, your practicality, your straightforwardness, and what you brought to this community. Thank you. Thank you. This, was, this has been fun. Thank you for listening to Down East Viewpoints. To learn more about the work that Dr. Beal and his colleagues are doing at the Down East Institute, check out their website at downeastinstitute.org. You'll also find info about planning a visit, educational opportunities, community outreach, and special events. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode of Downey's Viewpoints. If you'd like to contact me, Claire Deal, please email me at downeysviewpoints at gmail.com. Until then, take good care of yourself and the wild and beautiful places you love.